It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. so strange Hey, jealous lover What is making you change Hey, jealous lover How wrong can you be I'm yours ever faithful Just be faithful to me I am just as steady as that clock on the shelf Maybe you're accusing me of what you do I almost don't want to talk hey, over this song. It's such a wonderful lover. song. This is obviously Hey Jealous Lover I'm by Frank Sinatra. Uh, half past the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This is one of my favorite Sinatra songs. And it's one that's very rarely played on the radio. It's from the Ring-A-Ding-Ding album, which is just a, a great album uh, in, in its entirety. Obviously, it's got the song Ring-A-Ding-Ding on there, but also the coffee song, a lot of other great songs. And uh, in looking at Frank Sinatra, there are a lot of scholars, there are a lot of experts that know about Frank Sinatra as a personality. They can tell you who he hung out with. They can tell you uh, where he went to school and who his parents were, where he lived at different points of his life, who he was married to at different points of his life. There are other people that can tell you what Frank Sinatra was like as an entertainer, but I am yet to meet anybody that can really do the job of capturing the essence of Frank Sinatra, not only as a public personality, but as a personality in person as well. That's why I'm very, very pleased we've persuaded Bruce Charrett to stay up late with us. He is a veteran producer, an entertainment manager, he's a philanthropist, and was a friend of Frank Sinatra's. Bruce, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me on the radio again. Thank you for having me. It's one of my great pleasures to uh, to spend the night with you like this. <laughs> well, you'll have to, uh, whatever you're, you're smoking, you'll have to give my wife some because I don't think she derives the same pleasure. But um, I let me, a lot, when I spoke with Tom Dreesen about Frank Sinatra a couple of months ago, he uh, un, you know, unprompted said, hey, you know, you got to be careful about all these guys that claim that they were friends with Frank Sinatra or knew Frank Sinatra because honestly, almost Almost all of them are dead. Now, you're substantially younger than Sinatra would have been if he uh, still lived today. How did you get to know Frank Sinatra? And by the way, I agree with Tom completely because I hear all these stories. And, you know, Danny Kaye used to have a great line. He said, if everybody graduated from Jefferson High School with me, who claims they did, the graduating class would have had 200,000 people, you know? <laughs> so it, it, it's, it's getting more and more ridiculous as time goes on. I had kind of a curious young life. I'm 60 years old now, but in my twenties, I spent age 21 to 28 working for Alan King and Alan and Sinatra were great friends. And it was a time in history when variety performers of that ilk all worked the same places. And a lot of that was Atlantic City and Las Vegas. And this sounds like a cliche, but they did socialize. They did hang out together. Alan was kind enough to allow me to hang around. And through that, I developed relationships with his peers. 
Some of them were 30 years older than I was, 40 years older, 50 years older than I was. And for whatever reason, they found me tolerable at worst and adorable at best, I suppose. And uh, I got to know a lot of those people. And I have such great memories of hanging out in the lounge with Sammy Davis and and Sinatra a lot. And Frank's manager, Elliot Weissman, became a great friend of mine. And Elliot's still with us, thankfully, living in Florida. And I still talk to Elliot all the time. So I was very, very lucky that somebody my age who loved that period and those people as much as I did got to spend time with them and get to know them. And then when I moved to L.A. and I kind of my career grew and I ended up a television executive, but I took those relationships with me. And I spent many evenings at Stephen Eady's house with Sinatra. And um, what I, was he a close friend of mine? Certainly not. Did I get to know him reasonably well? I did. Did I get to witness him in private situations? Absolutely. And my overriding position, and I say this to everybody, I thought he was kind and smart and amazingly interesting, just as an observer. Mm. Uh, if there's and, anybody that uh, hasn't written a book that should, it, it's you, because the life that oh, you've led, oh, and, I'm serious, and continue to lead. You're going to make me blush, it's, and I'm not worthy of writing a book, but I will tell you this, because I, I do like to be prepared, so I said to myself, what story can I tell that I witnessed that nobody else could tell about Sinatra that kind of gives the audience a little insight? And it's a story that I've repeated many times because it just floored me when, he, when, when it happened. And it took place in his dressing room in Atlantic City. And he was getting dressed and there were people hovering around the dressing room and the television was on. And it was a retrospective of Dick Cavett and he was doing a section about Groucho Marx and he was interviewing Groucho Marx. And then Cabot was interviewed subsequently about the interviews and the interviewer of Cabot asked him about Marx. And he said to Cabot, what is it that you, that you remember about Groucho that was most surprising to you? And he said, in a private moment with Groucho, I asked him, if you were to describe yourself of all your talents, what is it that is at the core of who you are? And immediately Groucho responded, I'm a writer. And Cabot was stunned by that reaction. And Sinatra sort of listening to this out of the corner of his eye as the people in the dressing room are. And I wish I, I could retell the story because everybody's dead and say, I asked Sinatra the question, but I didn't. Sometimes when I retell the story, I take credit for it, but it's not true. <laughs> Somebody else in the dressing room asked and they said, Mr. S., we're going to ask you the same question. What is it that you are? Give us the one word. And he thought for a minute and he thought for a minute. And then he gave us the most shocking answer. He said, that's easy. I'm a musician. And that floored me. And I've never forgotten it. He didn't say an entertainer. He didn't say a singer. He didn't say a movie star. He said, I'm a musician. And if you, Think about that and you let that resonate for a minute. It totally lets you understand his approach to his work and his contribution and who he thought he was. And that was where his he, he understood his artistry mm. laid. And I just love that story because it's it's mine. 
I witnessed it. It's not a secondhand story. And I think it, it gives you such insight into him in a way that you don't I've never read it anywhere else. Uh, you know, talking about Sinatra as a musician, obviously a lot of folks know that he got his start with uh, the uh, Tommy Dorsey Orchestra. But he, at the early part of his career especially, it really does seem like he was a, a part of a great transition from one era of music to another. As I alluded to um, with what Tom Dreesen said previously... Almost everybody that's old enough to have known Frank Sinatra as a peer has died. Almost, we're getting to the point where almost everyone that's ever seen Frank Sinatra perform in person, except at the very end of his career, which was obviously a very different entertainer than the uh, kind of person that was singing 40 years before that, has died. If you were to tell folks what you view Frank Sinatra's legacy is, particularly his musical legacy, since you said that's how he identified itself. How would you characterize it? What is Sinatra's legacy? Well, first, I just want to uh, uh, qualify something that you said, because I am argumentative by nature. He really wasn't a transitional figure musically. He was a culmination figure. He was the pinnacle of the musical style that started in the 1910s and culminated in the 1950s with Frank Sinatra's body of work. And I was privy to a conversation with him, and I'll answer your question in a minute, but one thing makes me think of something else, where we were taught, he loathed rock, rock and roll music. You know, people can tell me he loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I can tell you he loathed rock and roll music. There was nothing about that he, that he liked. He thought it was infantile and ridiculous. But with that said, somebody at the table said to him, you are responsible for rock and roll music. And he got arched by that. And the thesis was the following, and I kind of agree with it, that what Sinatra did in the 50s by taking the great, music that had been written for the 30, 40 years prior to him with the great arrangers like Nelson Riddle and Billy May and Axel Stordahl and all those Gordon Jenkins, all the people that we know, and took that music and recorded it and performed it and executed it as brilliantly as it could possibly be done. There was nothing left for the next generation to do with that musical style. So all artists are by definition, want to create something new. So they were compelled to go in a completely different direction, start from scratch and start a new art form. So he was not a transitional figure. He was the culmination of that, the greatest that ever, that ever existed in that musical genre and that style. Now, when you ask me what his contribution was, Besides the obvious, which people talk about, which is he was the best popular singer that ever lived. And there are technical reasons for that, because he simply did everything better than everybody else. He had he had perfect intonation and he had the best rhythm and he had the best time and he understood lyrics better than anybody else. And he was gifted with a maybe not the best instrument, but a beautiful baritone. All that comes together to make him the best singer ever. But what people, I think a lot of people don't realize is his contribution besides that is the following. We talk a lot about the great American songbook and the idea of standards. 
I submit that none of that would exist without Frank Sinatra. And the reason for that is when he started making the concept albums in the 1950s, he went back to his youth and chose songs that he loved from the 20s and 30s that basically were deader than a doornail, songs that had been completely forgotten, songs like Swinging Down the Lane and uh, 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 I'm thinking of all the songs on the, on the, on the, on the albums that he made. It's late. Um, I get it. Believe me. But- uh when your lover has gone, I'm picking the, the, the ones that are the less obvious ones, but even the, even the, what we now call the Gershwin standards and the Rogers and Hart standards, I wish I were in love again. These were songs that had been written 20, 30 years earlier. Nobody was recording them at that point. The, the recording industry singers sang new material, whether the singers that were recording in, in, at that period, whether it was Frankie Lane or Eddie Fisher or, Johnny Ray, it was all about new songs. And it was Frank who mined the territory of all these great songs that were 20, 30 years old and reapproached them, reinvigorated them, found a new audience that was interested in them and made everybody realize that this is material to be cherished and loved and, and honored. And it was from that that all other singers started mining all these great songs that had been written during that great period. And out of that, that was the progenitor of what became the great American songbook without Frank's taste and courage to have said, no, I'm not only going to do new material. I'm going to go find these great songs and reapproach them with the musical taste and sophistication that we have reached in the 1950s to create this home, this incredible body of work. And this all comes out of his mind. It all comes out of his incredible taste. And he, he is, the, he is the, 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 the author of everything that we understand post that. None of it would exist without him. That's his legacy. Hi, it's Ernie Anastas. You know, your thoughts can affect how you feel, and how you feel can impact your thoughts. Addressing your mind and body connection is the key to improving your overall wellness. Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is the largest hospital in New Jersey, providing comprehensive, equitable, compassionate, and high-quality emergency inpatient and outpatient medical care, plus mental health services and substance use disorder treatment. The Bergen Newbridge team can address your total health needs in one convenient location. Call 201-225-7130 for an appointment or newbridgehealth.org. The, you know, it's interesting how you uh, characterize Sinatra as the uh, the greatest vocalist who ha- has ever lived. There are a lot of other singers that are great and have their fans and have had hit records. Uh, people like uh, Johnny Mathis, uh, Dean Martin, certainly Bing Crosby. What separates a Sinatra from a Bing Crosby, for instance? Well, well, I mean, you can, first of all, we all are certainly entitled. I like all those people, but I, tr- the, the reason that Sinatra is the greatest is, as I tried to say in, a minute ago, he did everything better than almost everybody else. So I can give you an example. I, let's talk about if you like, there are some people that only like guys that swing, right? So, well, they love Bobby Darren and they love Buddy Greco. Well, it's hard to swing better than Bobby Darren and Buddy Greco, but Bobby Darren and Buddy Greco don't sing ballads like Frank Sinatra. They didn't 
Mm. Ella Fitzgerald has perfect Mm. intonation and Ella Fitzgerald has perfect time. But you really don't believe Ella Fitzgerald when she sings because she sings like a musician. She pays no attention to her lyrics. Bing Crosby was 15 years older than Frank, and he's kind of the generation before and he didn't have the, 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 the approach, the musical approach that was that Frank had that sort of came after the Second World War. And Bing was sort of, although he was in the 1930s, he was it. But so Frank took that to another level. So you can say there are somebody swings as well as Frank or somebody may sing a ballad as well as Frank. We, I can list 10 people that were gifted with a better instrument technically than Frank, you know, uh, by by Frank's own admission, Vic Damone, Dick Haynes, Steve Lawrence, these guys all probably had better instruments than Frank, but nobody did everything as well as Frank did everything. Uh, Talking with Bruce... Bruce Charrett, uh, you can uh, learn more about him. Uh, just Google Bruce Charrett, and uh, his website comes right uh, right up. Uh, there are there are hyphens in there, so I don't want to uh, you know spend too much time giving the web address. But uh, certainly an interesting character, interesting guy in his own right. Hey, Bruce, the the thing that always gets talked about these days when it comes to Frank Sinatra is the Rat Pack era. Certainly, there are great movies like uh, Ocean's Eleven, and you have um, you know. All sorts of albums that have been re-released, both digitally and on CD, now again on vinyl, of the Rat Pack at the Sands and all sorts of things like that. There was even an HBO movie made about the Rat Pack, and it just looks like such a, a fun era of all these brilliant entertainers hanging out with one another every day, going out and then uh, entertaining all sorts of folks. Help us separate kind of the reality, the actual history of what happened from the myth of the Rat Pack. Well, you know, the Rat Pack has sort of become a metaphor for a moment in history. And I think that if you look at it historically, purely as a historian, there was a very short window in time in the early 1960s in the United States when the sexual revolution was starting to take hold in America, but the old culture still existed. So it's the period between when the, the, the shackles of the sexual revolution were lifted in the very late 50s and before the Kennedy assassination, the Vietnam War, and, 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 and the, the total shift in the cultural revolution that took place before the Beatles. And when we look back on it, it's sort of the metaphors for that, I think, are like it's like the Rat Pack and James Bond and Playboy. And when you look at it, it just seems so cool. Everybody is having a good time. Everybody's a little drunk. Everybody's in a perfect tuxedo. It's certainly misogynist. I don't know how cool it is if you're a woman or if you're black or, you know, sure. but if you're a white male, it certainly seems like the coolest time ever to have lived. And that may very well be true. So if you talk about the, the, the moment in history and what the Rat Pack represents, I kind of get that. I certainly understand what it is. If you're asking me about what the Rat Pack actually was, it has very little to do with how it's remembered. The, the, the Rat Pack, first of all, Frank hated that term, and we, we all know the history of it. That was a term that was coined by Lauren Bacall for a social group that was in Hollywood with 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 right, Humphrey Bogey Bogart and, and so sure. on and so forth. But what happened is this, the Sinatra was filming the Sands and it was filming at the Sands in Las Vegas. He was filming Ocean's Eleven in 1960. 
And Jakey Friedman, who was an owner of the Sands and was did all the publicity for the hotel, came said to Frank, why don't you all appear at the hotel at the same time? It'll be good promo for the movie and so on. So it so happened that Dean, Frank, and Sammy were all Sands acts anyway. So it worked out. So they were shooting during the day, and the Sands, excuse me, the Sands promoted this. And nobody cared about it quite to the degree when it was going on as they do in retrospect. But the thing that bothers me about it is I was like everybody else. When I was a kid, I would say, my God, that's the show I would have liked to have seen. And everybody that I spoke to, without exception, who was kind of a hip, cool guy or woman who lived through that period, who said, no, you didn't want to see those shows. Those were the, those were the corniest shows for squares. They were, they were, you, you take Dean, Frank, and Sammy, because Peter Lawford was there because he had a famous brother-in-law mm-hmm. and Joey Bishop was there because he happened to be the comic that Frank was enamored of at that moment. But Dean, Frank, and Sammy were so extraordinarily talented and to see each of them on their own, totally different, but a, an amazing experience in a saloon, but seeing them together was you, you got the minute of them alone, but seeing them together was a corny frat boy, nonsensical 20 minutes. And here's the part of it that I think historically that I don't think anybody talks about. Um, the Rat Pack is 1960. Dean and Jerry broke up in 1956. Dean and Jerry was, by everybody that remembered them, the funniest saloon nightclub act that ever existed. What made them so funny was the absolute irreverence, anarchy, pandemonium that they brought to the room. And this was only four years before. And Dean was the funny bone of that, of the Rat Pack. And if you look at what they do, it's sort of a attempt to bring the Dean and Jerry anarchy back onto the stage. Mm. And, and if you even listen to the, the, the set pieces, the jokes that Dean does with Sammy, not the NAACP joke, obviously, but a lot of the other jokes, the jokes he does with Joey, those are right out of the Martin Lewis act. But the difference is, is that the, the anarchy that was there for Martin Lewis was Jerry. And without Jerry, it didn't, it never worked. So people that saw it in 1960, who were so aware of Martin and Lewis only four years earlier, kind of looked at it and scratched their heads and said, you know, why are they doing Dean and Jerry's nonsense? And, and that's sort of lost to time. But, you know, it's remembered for what it is. And, and I often think that there are things, I kind of think it some, in some ways it bothers me that those performances were recorded mm. because it would have been far better just to leave them to everybody's imagination. When you sort of hear them, you go, really? That's what they were doing? <laughs> uh, understood and uh, duly noted. Hey, uh, Bruce, I have to run, but I have to ask uh, you uh, the question that uh, I love to hear people's opinion on. If you had to pick one Sinatra album that you'd say is your favorite, which one is it and why is it your favorite? Well, I, I can't pick one. I have to pick two if I if you'll sure. indulge okay. me, yeah. because they're so different. And they're both from the period I was talking about. They're both the capital period. And 
I mean, it's on the swinging side, uh, songs for swinging lovers and a swinging affair. It's almost one album, you know, they were released uh, a year apart or so, but I guess if I had to pick one, it would be the swinging lovers album. And then it would either be uh, uh, only the lonely or we small hours of the morning for for an album of ballads or as Sinatra used to say songs to slit your throat by <laughs> he wasn't a fan of performing ballads or listening to them no 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 he he certainly was a fan of performing ballads and he no but he, i mean songs to slit your throat by was you know there was a there was a very famous comedy writer named harry crane who invented the honeymooners wrote for dean and jerry and he was one of frank's great friends frank absolutely adored him and and he sort of summed up Sinatra uh, singing ballads by saying, nobody in the world bleeds like Frank when he wow. sings. I love that. And, and it's such a wonderful line because it's true. And I, again, I, I kind of, people have written this about Frank, so it's not anything that's unique to me. But what he did was he shared openly for a man who was uh, in many ways very private and profoundly dignified in his demeanor. He was willing to share his emotions with his audience through the lyrics in a way that has never been equaled, I don't think, by any other popular artist. Uh, Bruce, uh, I really appreciate the time. I know it's late for you, even on the West Coast. Thanks for doing this. My very great pleasure, and a Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah to all your listeners, and Happy New Year. Thank you. I look forward to seeing you uh, when you're in New York again. Bruce Charrett, you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 